Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. I'm Katie. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church, and I'm so glad to see all of you and grateful to those of you at home who have welcomed us into your space tonight. Uh, We're a couple weeks in now to a worship series on the epistle to the Colossians. It doesn't really have a theme except Colossians, so we've just called it Epaphras Onesimus Nympha Paul. We'll see what comes. Um, We're just following through the argument of the epistle. We're going to read Every single word of this essay embedded in correspondence, an epistle is written by an authoritative teacher to an audience in need of instruction, and that's what we have here. So we're just going to see where it takes us. I'm reading tonight from Colossians chapter 1, where we left off last week in verse 13. We'll pick back up with verse 13 and keep going through nearly, but not quite the end of that chapter. God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to God's self all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there are oodles of danger zones inherent in my work here tonight. Really, it seems like wherever I turn, homiletically speaking, there is a trap waiting for me in this text from Colossians 1. There is, in the first place, the danger that explaining a poem is an act of violence against the poem. 
It seems likely to many people who study this uh, second half of Colossians chapter 1 that the rhythmic lines in verses 15 through 20 with their repetitious structure piling up esoteric descriptions of the beloved son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, etc., etc., are lines of poetry, not prose, and are possibly the lyrics of a very early Christian hymn extolling the wonder of God's saving work through the beloved son. I myself am not much of a poet, but I can hear the spirit of Robin Williams, the soulful, sensitive, dead poet society, Robin Williams, obviously, urging me to step the fuck back from a careful exegetical analysis of the lines of this poem, climb on top of a school desk to free my mind and just, just sing them if they're meant to be sung, right? Rather than murdering the poem by smothering it in sermonic prose. I hear you, O oh captain, my captain, I shall do my best. There is also the danger that I'll imagine somehow it's my job to explain the doctrine of the Trinity to all of you in 18 minutes. Okay, 20. As this text introduces the beloved son as both the firstborn of all creation and the one in whom and through whom and for whom all things visible and invisible were created. And he is both the visible image of the invisible God and the one in whom all God's fullness takes up residence. He either shows us God or is God or carries God around like a vessel. He either was created or is the creator. And it's enough to make your head spin. It makes my head spin. So while I believe that the beloved son is constitutive of the triune God, that God exists beyond time in perpetual relationship to God's self as parent, child, and spirit in an intensity of eternal interconnectedness known in Christian theology as perichoresis. And while I believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the fullest expression of God with us, Emmanuel, that the world has ever seen, and thus also the cosmic Christ, redeemer of the created universe before which he existed and in which he was born and lived and died, well, you should know that I have now used up my linguistic capacity for explaining the Trinity. And thus the divinity of the beloved Son, the Christ. It is a super short sermon tonight, if it is my job to make that mystery any plainer. See, I could ruin that as easily as I could club a poem to death with clumsy, tortured prose. And finally, at least as far as I have allowed this thought experiment to run in my own writer's blocked mind, finally, there is the danger that in turning our eyes toward the pre-existent first place in everything, creator Christ, we lose the connecting thread with the radical and scandalous specificity of the dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who came from backwater first century Nazareth, poor and unemployed and unhoused, a non-citizen in a vassal state under the boot of empire, rejected by his religious kin and executed as a state criminal. In Bible and Beer last week, there was some promising discussion of Pokemon evolution as a way of solving this particular problem. Earthbound Jesus as a fire and water type, evolving to his final form as the psychic type Christ. 
I'm pretty sure the church fathers would lose their shit over that one, and I don't understand Pokemon any more than I understand perichoresis. <laughs> but it did seem like a good faith effort to make sure that the Jesus we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the one with calloused feet and gnarly toenails, the one suffering the occasional hangover and hemorrhoid and headache, the one who has moods and besties and longtime frenemies, the Jesus we love to love here at Galileo Church. Smart and snarky and altogether human remains connected to the cosmic Christ of Colossians 1, the J. Christ superstar hovering above the earth stage in glorious spangles and sequins, perfectly pedicured and positioned to save everything, everywhere, all at once. Hmm. So having noted the dangers and confess my own certainty that I am not up to the challenge presented by this gorgeous piece of biblical rhetoric, here is something I can say. That when Paul contemplates the why of it all, when the church's first theologian considers what it all meant, what it all means for the world, for the universe that God still loves, why Jesus, why Christ, why any of this matters to you and me and the average Colossian Christian on the ground, the answer he often gives is reconciliation. Through him, the poem sings, God was pleased to reconcile to God's self all things. And in a little post-hymn commentary, Paul says to his readers, And you, you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. That's verse 21 in the first part of 22. And I'm... I'm taking these two instances of reconcile to refer to two distinct but related reconciliations that have been accomplished in the Christ event. Christ event, that's shorthand for Jesus' presence here from condescension to exaltation. In the first place, the hymn says, God reconciles all things, including us, to God's self. That is to say, things between God and all all things, including us, have been badly broken. God and God's creation are out of sorts, at cross purposes, not speaking to one another, far from each other's hearts. But through him, through Christ, we see God pleased, tickled pink, to put it all back together, to bring the whole world, including us, home to God's heart. It is a massive repair of the cosmic rift introduced in the mythos of Eden once upon a time when the goodness of God's creation went seriously off the rails. So now I'm picturing the cosmic Christ in his superstar spangles holding a smoking soldering iron a welding mask lowered to protect his gorgeous black visage, throwing sparks while he permanently patches back together the separated pieces, the broken lines of love between creator and creation. God getting everything God wants requires some cosmic amalgamation, I'm saying. And the Colossians' Christ is the one doing it, Paul is saying, reconciling to God's self all things closing the distance, filling the gap, repairing the breach. Hmm. 
Then in the second place, Paul says in his post-hymn commentary, you, you who were once estranged and hostile, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. And while it's possible that Paul is just doubling down on the reconciliation of all created things with God our creator, I suspect that for Paul, the estrangement and hostility and evil deeds he has in mind are about the need he sees for reconciliation within the human family. Later on, when we get to his ethical exhortations nearer to the end of this epistle, we're going to see that for Paul, all ethics is relational. Christian morality is not only about living an upright life to get on and stay on God's good side. It is mostly about engaging with our fellow humans in ways that keep their best interest paramount in our decision-making. Taken this way, estrangement and hostility and evil deeds are the symptoms of our sickness. The problem for which we cannot manufacture our own solution. We find ourselves fragmented and isolated, siloed in the socials, finding something to argue about, even with those nearest to us, striving always for differentiation and notice and approval and advancement in the hierarchy we hate, even if it means smacking down somebody else's best efforts to get the same. I'm saying, if you ask me tonight to diagnose the human condition for which the world needs a savior, I'd say we have lost our sense of common humanity. We have been at each other's throats. We have ignored and insulted and blamed and belittled each other just about to death. And sometimes if you're black or an immigrant or indigenous or poor or a woman or queer to actual death. We have become estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We need to be reconciled. Humankind needs to be reconciled to itself, to each other. Now, Paul, reflecting on the sonorous symphony of salvation that is his epistolary earworm, the song he cannot get out of his head, says that all of that, all of it is for the sake of putting back together that which has been broken. That is, the reconciliation of all things to God's self and the reconciliation, all of us, to each other. And if reconciliation is just another religious word to you, if it's just another pancake to add to the salvation stack, along with atonement and redemption and expiation and forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera, you might miss the irony here. And good heavens, missing the irony, that would be tragic. Finding the irony, now that's something I can do. That's in my wheelhouse. And here it is. Paul, the poet, or at least the appreciator of poetry, is waxing on about the cosmic Christ. And then the whole thing, the whole thing lands with a thud in the last line of that song. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to God's self all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. 
And then he does it again in his commentary on the hymn. You who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death. Two times, right in a row, our first theologian is flying his argument on the gossamer wings of the most glamorous Christology ever. And two times, right in a row, he spirals down and crash lands on Golgotha, the place of the skull, on the day that the sun stopped shining at noon and the most beautiful human who ever lived took his last labored breath. It was, I'm saying, Paul is saying, the most broken thing that has ever happened. It's the furthest from God's heart we have ever been. It is the most extreme demonstration of our estrangement and hostility and evil deeds toward each other the world has ever seen. The blood of his cross, the fleshly body, dead. It's as if God gave us a makeup gift, and I'm, I'm ready to take you back kind of present, and we just threw it on the ground and smashed it under our collective human heel. It's as if we were invited to practice loving humanity by loving this most lovable human and we acted out the ultimate alienation and antipathy instead, pushing him as far away from ourselves as we possibly could. The blood of his cross, his fleshly body dead, the brokenness no more broken than which can be imagined. And Paul says, and I'm laboring to say, that's it. That's the moment. That's the secret sauce. That's the irony you don't want to miss. That in the whole Christ event, pre-existent and fullness of God and firstborn, first place, first in everything, this is the moment when he ceases to exist, when he is completely empty of God, when he is not first but last and least and losing, naked as the day he was born, soldiers throwing dice for his clothes while he expires. That is the moment the miracle happens. That is the putting back together of everything broken. That is the reconciliation we long for. Do not ask me how it works or why it works. Something to do, surely, with God's own willingness to empty God's self out, pour God's self out, to subject God's self to our destructive hostility and estrangement in order to put an end to exactly that in us, for us. This is the patented, it works because God says so argument, and I'm sticking to it. But here is the thing I know. Here is the thing. If God goes to that extreme, as far into the broken, alienating fragmentation as God can get, the brokenness no more broken than which can be imagined, if God goes there, all the way there, in order to reconcile once and for all, all things to God's self and all of us to each other, well, that should tell us something about how valuable this reconciliation is to God. How badly God wants that for us, from us. And if it's that important to God, I'm saying, it's got to be important to us, too. 
we who have been brought home to God's heart. We have to become now the kind of people who work for reconciliation everywhere, even at great expense to ourselves. We have to carry on this work, I'm saying, of putting back together that which has been broken. You know I do not trust a church that says they never fight, that they have no conflict, that they do church in perfect harmony all the time. I don't, I don't trust it. I mean, it might be true, but at what cost? I suspect it means that they're afraid to disagree, afraid to disappoint each other, afraid to argue because they're not well-practiced at reconciliation. They don't know how to patch it up. They don't know how to solder it back together with the spirit of the living Christ within us. Reconciliation stipulates disagreement, I'm saying. It requires that we are doing life together enough to sometimes get on each other's last nerve. It demands that we stay in conversation when we least want to. It necessitates our willingness to lay down our weapons and lay our armor down. It presupposes truth-telling, real relationship with no bullshit ever. It makes possible truth-telling, real relationship with no bullshit ever. Because the putting back together of what's broken is exactly the thing the cosmic Christ crash-landed for. Now, I don't know how it works, but thanks be to God. It does. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace. Peace.